permutations of what we modern folk might recognize as journalism emerged in Renaissance-era Europe, so around the 15th and 16th centuries, and there were precursor publications, newsletters basically, leading up to that time, and these newsletters saw success and were most long-lived in trade-focused regions like Venice, but also further eastern parts of China. These newsletters were usually one-sheet explications of things that have happened alongside data, like the value of certain trade goods, expected arrival times for ships, and government-decreed tax figures. The idea was that you could learn all this stuff from people on the street, and by visiting all sorts of experts running different businesses down by the docks and working at government buildings. But these one-sheets aggregated such data, did all the work for you, and compiled a bunch of useful stuff into a single document. And people who could make use of this information, or who were just interested in around-town happenings and had the monetary resources to pay for such things, would be willing and able to invest in receiving it each day, or in some cases each week or month or at some other publishing cadence. These newsletters were originally handwritten, which put a cap on how many could be produced in a given period. With the emergence of the printing press and movable type in Europe, that scale massively increased, allowing newsletter businesses to expand in scope, because rather than having to handwrite dozens or hundreds of individual documents, you could write out the day's newsletter in movable type once, and then use that assembled movable type plate to print off as many copies as you wanted in a relatively short period of time, saving a lot of money and effort and allowing for far faster turnaround which also opened up the possibility of publishing more than one of these newsletters each day, if warranted. The funding model for this early newsletter-based news distribution system was straightforward. Usually, it was a subscription paid by the recipient of the newsletter directly to the person publishing that newsletter. This business model did well enough in Venice, which was a highly literate and relatively wealthy society at the time, that by the end of the 15th century, they had 150 printing presses in operation, which was more than double what Paris, which had the second largest printing industry after Venice, could claim. Around that same time, the German printing industry was beginning to take off, and it was publishing something closer to what we might recognize as modern newspapers, rather than one-sheets. There were multiple pages and separate sections on varying topics. But worth mentioning here is that even as the newspaper and newsletter trade increased, becoming international, as Italian and German printers scaled up their efforts, sourcing more and more information from foreign correspondents, increasing the number of sections and publications they had available so as to cover different topics and offer different sorts of value to their customers, handwritten newsletters of the more local variety continued to flourish, and they survived in roughly the same form through the 17th century. Because for some types of information, especially gossip and quick-moving data points like pricing information related to a very niche industry in a specific port, handwritten missives could be churned out faster and with less censorship, as they didn't require formal printing hubs and could thus be jotted down and disseminated by a handful of scribes to a small audience pretty quickly and surreptitiously. And they could do that from beyond the prying eyes of government agents or spies from other publishers wanting to steal a scoop. 
Many of these papers, whatever their scale and production model, continued to be funded by subscriptions, mostly from business people, politicians, and other wealthy folks who could afford them. With the advent of the printing press, more copies of each issue could be produced, and that allowed copies to be sold to the everyday person at more affordable rates. Some publications thus increased their scope and adjusted their business model to allow some or all issues to ultimately be sold street-side as well, hawked as a product rather than just a subscription. Religious leaders, especially in Venice around this time, were beginning to see the value of this model of information dissemination and began to sponsor some newsletters, usually with the caveat that they would then have some say over what they contained. And by the mid-16th century, they even began to publish their own newsletters on Sundays. These newsletters were funded by the church with the intention of spreading information that they wanted spread, while also allowing them to share news and announcements with their flock. The newsletters often read aloud to crowds by those who received them. Politicians also got in on that action, funding existing newsletters and similar publications, or starting their own. Some of these publications contained gossip and rumor, alongside real-deal news, and some were essentially just vehicles for opinion or even slander of a particular group's political opponents or ideological enemies. And that created the opportunity for publications to carve out niches for themselves, as in some cases, arbiters of truth, or something close to it, and in others, defenders of a particular belief system, church, political slant, or public figure. This same general jumble of newsletter and newspaper offerings expanded globally, and in the early United States, the first couple of papers that tried to open were quickly shut down by the government, suppressed because they didn't have approval to publish. The Boston Newsletter, which was a newspaper, did get approval and started publishing in 1704, and a bunch of print shops, primarily focused on books at the time, started producing similar publications as side hustles throughout the 18th century, including, famously, the print shop where a young Benjamin Franklin worked. Many of these publications were primarily loaded with opinion pieces, and many of those opinion pieces were printed anonymously and basically existed for the sole purpose of taking pot shots at people in power, a type of writing that has always been popular and which was partially funded by subscriptions and folks paying for copies on the street, but which also contained advertising and classifieds, which helped sustain these publications as they tried out new types of content. They weren't completely reliant on folks running out to buy each new issue or the ebbs and flows of attention and favor from those with enough money to buy subscriptions. And that meant they could run real news alongside all that editorial. They could run rumor alongside political content. They could try a lot of things because different types of money were flowing into their coffers. By the mid-19th century, this collection of business models allowed some newspapers, even in the burgeoning United States, to ship thousands of copies of their daily editions to subscribers, alongside many times that sold to folks on the street. Some publications tried out a totally free model, which allowed them to massively expand their readership, which in turn allowed them to acquire more advertisers in classified ads and to charge more for those ads because those advertisers knew they would be reaching a huge segment of the population. Other models also popped up along the way, usually based on new technologies and the needs of the location and moment. As the United States expanded westward, for instance, with settlers heading toward California to make land claims and set up ranches and homesteads, folks had to publish their land claims in newspapers to make them official. 
which became a business model for any printer who wanted to move in that direction and set up a print shop in one of these bustling boom towns. There was a guaranteed customer base because of that legal requirement. These printers would then often move further west once a location was full up with people and no more land claim notices were being published, their revenue drying up as things stabilized. In the early 20th century, the field of journalism was professionalized in large part because a collection of U.S.-based schools received grants from wealthy business people to create schools of journalism. A grant system for journalistic publications doing certain types of work, mostly investigative reporting of the type that became the norm for many well-regarded journalism institutions in the mid-20th century, emerged around the same time, which gave publications another business model they could partially rely upon, this one incentivizing the production of hard-hitting, meaningful, and factual work rather than more sensationalized muckraking and so-called yellow journalism, which was defined by often factless suppositions, brazen lies, and eye-catching but ultimately information-vacant headlines and columns. What I'd like to talk about today is another funding model that's been bucking recent journalism industry trends and how it fits into the larger contemporary journalism industry. listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The article I'd like to start with today comes from Axios, and it's entitled, WAPO to Keep Software Business Despite Sale Talks. The Washington Post, often called WAPO by folks in the news media industry, as is the case in that headline, has been around since 1877, publishing news for and about Washington, D.C. each day. It was founded by a newspaper publisher and journalist named Stilson Hutchins and was sold to a former postmaster general and former Democratic congressman from Ohio duo in 1889. After that pair of co-owners died, the former postmaster general's sons ran the paper for two years before selling it to another newspaper owner, a man named John Roll McLean, who owned the Cincinnati Inquirer. McLean put the paper into a trust so that when he died, his son, who was kind of a playboy and considered to be pretty worthless and unreliable by his father, wouldn't own it. But after his father's death in 1916, the son went to court and successfully broke the trust, taking possession of the paper and managing it into financial ruin, draining it of resources to pay for his high-end lifestyle and to support political causes he cared about. A financier named Eugene Meyer bought the post at a bankruptcy auction in 1933 for $825,000, three weeks after retiring from his position as the chairman of the Federal Reserve, and he brought the paperback up to snuff in terms of reputation and financial viability. His son-in-law, Phil Graham, took it over when he stepped down, and during their collective period of ownership, the paper bought the competing Washington Times-Herald, which was merged with the Post in 1954, and the new holistic entity was renamed the Washington Post and Times-Herald until 1973. Graham's wife and Meyer's daughter, Catherine Graham, took over the paper after Phil Graham's death in 1969 and ran it as one of the few women to have run a prominent national newspaper in the U.S. at the time until 1979, when she became CEO instead. 
During that ownership period in 1971, she took the company public, initially selling shares for $26 apiece. And by the time she stepped down from the role of CEO in 1991, the stock was worth $888 per share. Also during her tenure running the paper, in 1984, the Post bought a for-profit education and training company called Kaplan, which went on two decades later to become the company's biggest income generator, accounting for more than 60% of the company's total revenue in 2010. The company attempted to start an online news depository in 1995, but that effort failed pretty quickly and was shut down when the newspaper's formal online presence, WashingtonPost.com, launched in mid-1996. In 2013, Jeff Bezos, the founder and then-CEO of Amazon, bought the Washington Post for $250 million, a purchase that included some smaller, local publications, websites, and accompanying real estate as well. Assets that were not included in the sale, like the aforementioned Kaplan Education and Training Company and a small portfolio of TV stations, were re-aggregated into a holding company called Graham Holdings Company and is retained by the paper's former owners. The Washington Post today is owned by a holding company called Nash Holdings, which is owned by Bezos. Nash is a separate business entity from Amazon, which Bezos still partially owns as the company's largest shareholder, with 12.7% of the company's voting rights, even though he stepped down from running the company in 2021. And Bezos has been described by folks in the company, and those who have viewed things from the outside, but who are in a position to know what's up, as a hands-off owner who provides resources and has put capable management in charge, but otherwise doesn't influence the direction the paper takes, politically or otherwise. The Washington Post is important within the journalistic world in part because of its rich history. It famously played a role in the Watergate scandal and was the paper that employed Woodward and Bernstein, who played a role in breaking and reporting upon then-President Nixon's illegal and just bad behavior. But it has also published 69 Pulitzer Prize-winning pieces, which is the second-largest Pulitzer Hall, just behind the New York Times. Journalists working for the paper have won 368 White House News Photographer Association awards, have received 18 Neiman Fellowships, and it's considered to be a U.S. newspaper of record, operating one of the largest and best-funded newsrooms in the world from the country's capital, while still operating foreign bureaus, which is a rarity these days. The Post is also unusual and notable, though, because of how all that generally well-regarded journalism is funded. Like many other papers of this scale and with this reputation, the Post receives some money through grants, like the $250,000 it receives from Google and YouTube for its video-based fact-checking operation, alongside a decent stockpile of funds from Bezos' investment. It also sells subscriptions. I pay, I think, something like $40 a year for a subscription to The Post, which isn't bad for a paper of this scale. And they recently started offering a $50 a year for the next 50 years promotion, which is interesting, as subscription costs tend to go up, and that promo serves as kind of a flex, showing that they intend to be around for 50 years and can afford to offer an inflation-proof price tag that other papers probably won't be able to match. 
and they sell physical newspapers in stores for a dollar or two apiece, depending on the day. And if you want to get physical papers delivered to your home each day, that costs somewhere between $300 and $750 per year, depending on when and where you subscribe. The paper previously, before Bezos bought it, also partially sustained itself with profits from that educational-slash-training company Kaplan, which earned revenue by selling test preparation, student support and tutoring, and certification products and services. In 2015, though, the Post started a different sub-company, then called ARC, and which is today called ARC XP, with the backing of Bezos and support from Amazon in the shape of Amazon Web Services Technology, or AWS. In essence, ARC XP is a software-as-a-service company that brings in around $40 to $50 million a year as of 2022. They earn that revenue by providing software licenses to other publications that want to use the systems and technologies the Post has built out for itself for their own publications, and increasingly for other sorts of enterprise, businessy communication purposes as well. Even way back in the day, in the 20th century, the Post was an integrated business with its publishing, marketing, advertising, and print departments all in one building. That gave them some efficiencies other publishers didn't have, and it allowed them to scale faster than many of their competitors. ArcXP is kind of the same thing, but in software form. It's an amalgamation of their publishing, marketing, revenue-generating, and communication know-how and tools all in one package. And that allows them to sell this bundle of digital and cloud infrastructure services to clients like the Chicago Tribune, Los Angeles Times, the Globe and Mail up in Canada, and the New Zealand Herald. In some ways, then, this means ArcXP is a bit like WordPress in the sense that it's a content management system used by many publications in different ways to help them get their work out into the world. It helps newspapers publish the news across various platforms, including websites and apps. But it's also a platform for managing money, interfacing with other companies and platforms, and juggling all sorts of relationships. So it's a lot more complex than a blogging platform, even to the point that some smaller publications that were using it initially began to drift away a few years back because it seemed like it was becoming too big and jumbled for their intended use cases. At the same time, as the Washington Post expanded, folks inside the company began to worry that ArcXP wasn't complex enough for all the whiz-bang new things they wanted to try publishing-wise, and the additional revenue elements they wanted to tack on to the traditional model of subscribers and advertisers. Today, ArcXP describes itself as an experience platform and has been working with companies ranging from the Golden State Warriors basketball team to the energy company BP. And though this sub-business isn't profitable yet, folks within the Post's larger umbrella entity have repeatedly said that they see it as being the third leg of the income stool for the company, alongside subscribers and advertisers. This decision to double down on ARC XP has been in the news a lot recently, in part because the Washington Post has reportedly received numerous offers to buy this sub-brand in the low nine-figures range which is pretty good for a business that is only making tens of millions of dollars in revenue a year, unprofitably at the moment. 
Those in charge at ARC XP, though, have said that they're not finance-constrained and can keep plugging along at the business until they get it right and are able to up that income to around $100 million a year sometime in the next three to five years, at which point it would start to become that third leg on the profit stool, as intended. This decision to stick with ARC rather than selling it hasn't been well-received by everyone. Some analysts think it's a smart move within the larger journalism business context, which I'll talk more about in a moment, but others see it as a play to influence the larger journalism world by controlling the dominant platform they all use. If ARC XP becomes good enough that the majority of publications start using it, that would give Bezos a lot of leverage over these publications. Theoretically, at least, as again, he's reportedly been very hands-off with the post thus far, so this might be more of a, publishers might someday become wary of saying anything mean about Bezos just in case sort of thing, as opposed to a, Bezos would definitely overtly hurt our newspaper out of vengeance if we step out of line concern. Which isn't a paranoid thing to worry about, as history worldwide is littered with tales of religious, political, and other public figures manipulating the press, whatever shape the press physically or digitally might take at the moment. It's possible that Bezos or someone like him could leverage their ownership or influence over such a publication in order to get their narratives into public discourse, laundering those ideas and stories via the good reputation such a publication offers. And that power would expand many-fold if they controlled not just one big newspaper, but a foundational element a large number of papers rely upon, to the point that they would be kind of screwed if that element was ever taken away from them. The other concern here is that journalistic entities might be entering a period in which they have trouble keeping the lights on without some kind of separate business or beneficent billionaire backing them. The New York Times is, by all indications, just killing it in terms of subscriber revenue. Their websites have seen a 52% increase in traffic year-on-year year as of May 2022, and their recent acquisition of indie-developed online game Wordle reportedly brought the Times tens of millions of new users alongside nearly 400,000 new digital-only subscribers. It was reported in early May of 2022 that the New York Times has reached 9.1 million subscribers, up from 7.6 million at the end of 2021. A huge increase, and one that defies dominant trends elsewhere in the country, as most publications are struggling to maintain their subscriber base. Even independent news-oriented podcasts like this one have seen their paying subscriber base drop, in some cases dramatically, throughout 2022 so far. It's been a truly terrible year for revenue streams, and everyone from individual-run podcasts like this one to big citywide papers are feeling the burn and worrying over how much worse things might get. Overall newspaper circulation in the U.S. dropped by 12% year-on-year as of March 2022, and that's with the New York Times growth nudging that average upward, so it's been quite a drop overall. The emergence of indie-oriented platforms like Substack may be partially to blame here, as it's made it far easier and free, at least to start, for independent writers and journalists to create newsletters and podcasts, turning on paid offerings if they like, while Substack takes a cut of whatever they make. Even Substack, though, has apparently not been doing great in 2022, to the point where they dropped fundraising efforts and have been telling investors that the company made around $9 million in revenue in 2021 from about $20 million in revenue overall, much of which was paid out to newsletter publishers, 
and they have more than 1 million paid subscribers across all publications on its platform, which is up from a quarter million in December of 2020. And that's impressive growth, but the lack of investor interest, at least on terms that the company could get behind, suggests that this space too is experiencing some contraction, or at least a slowdown in growth, compared to where things were a few years back. And the company still has yet to make a profit on all that revenue and those other positive figures. This week, as of the day I'm recording this, the head of Substack announced that the company would be firing 14% of its employees now that they'll need to live off the money they have in the bank rather than a new round of investment. And since they are the biggest player in this facet of the newsletter world right now, that may mean things are even worse behind the scenes for some of their competitors. All of which lines up with recent data from Neiman, Reuters, and other research firms saying that people are avoiding the news in ever-increasing numbers. People trust the news less and less. An average of 42% of people trust the news globally, and that's down to 26% of people who trust the news in the United States. And people are thus funding the news, paying for newspapers, subscribing to online papers and podcasts and newsletters, substantially less than usual as well. In 2013, 47% of Americans got their news from print sources, and that's down to 15% as of 2022. The U.S. is losing an average of about two newspapers per week, most of them local weeklies, and has lost about a quarter of all of its papers since 2005. About 2,500 papers have disappeared between then and 2022. 67% of Americans get their news online these days, and 42% get it from social media rather than actual news sources which maybe says something about where news entities need to go, how they might need to pivot to reach people, but also says quite a bit about our media habits and how news isn't just competing with other news anymore. It's competing with Netflix and TikTok and the whole of the internet, which arguably puts it at a disadvantage as the news often tells us stuff we don't want to hear and things that, according to recent studies, can make us feel depressed and helpless and even cause us to experience something akin to PTSD. Also worth mentioning, and this goes back to that stat on how few people read physical newspapers these days, is that online ads are worth far less than printed ads. So that shift to online advertising has been troublesome. As more people move online, if papers display the same number of ads as before, they make far less money and cannot sustain their journalistic activities which is part of why so many papers are clinging to print production, despite the inherent costs of printing physical newspapers these days, and despite their audiences moving steadily and steadfastly online. Similarly, news consumed on social media, even if it originates with a real-deal journalistic entity, seldom results in any money for that news entity. So the newspapers pay to produce news coverage. That news coverage is slurped up by social media networks and displayed on Google search results. And folks get the news, which is good, but the entities producing that news seldom make any money from it. So they are spending money, but not making any money in return on those efforts in a lot of online contexts. It may be based on this swirl of activity and seemingly tempestuous period of dramatic change and dramatic change in the variables shaping news consumption that journalism just has to change. The way journalists use the communication tools available needs to change, and possibly the business models underpinning such entities need to change as well. Maybe we'll see more billionaire-backed publications as a consequence of this, and maybe we'll see more newspapers and online entities shifting toward a model that's backed by another business, something more profitable. 
A few local papers are already supported by coffee shops and bars, and some have simply streamlined down to become newsletters, because the upkeep on that type of publication model is far smaller than comparable distribution methods. Still others are refocusing some of their attention on spendy online and real-world events. The Economist and Quartz have been doing this quite a lot lately, for instance. And others, like Axios, are selling their own product, similar in some ways to what The Post is doing. In Axios's case, it's a software-as-a-service offering that helps people and publications create streamlined news offerings, like Axios does. We may also see more grants from institutions, individuals, and governments all of which come with their own pros and cons, as becoming too dependent on, for instance, Google-provided grants could leave you high and dry if they decide to pull that funding, which happens on a semi-regular basis with Google. Or if you get a big scoop on something bad that Google has done, and then worry that they might economically hobble you in revenge if you publish it, which creates a big conflict of interest. Government-funded publications and broadcasters also have a long history of being sometimes amazing, but almost always mistrusted because of the interests that back such things, and the hoops that journalists sometimes have to jump through to keep political support behind their efforts, and to just survive from administration to administration. Many papers are also being scooped up by holding companies that specialize in buying news entities, draining them of their resources, their real estate, their printing machines, any asset they can sell, really, and keeping them propped up as zombie companies, churning out clickbait to garner ad revenue, but firing most of the staff and almost all of the actual journalists, and from that point forward, operating less as a newspaper and more as a link farm. That's, unfortunately, one of the dominant business models for papers in the United States right now, being bought out either by vulture funds of that kind or big news conglomerates like Sinclair, which owns a stable of these types of companies and uses them to disseminate a whole lot of politically biased propaganda pieces alongside periodic blocks of actual news. It's going to be a tumultuous time for journalism. Not just because trust is so low and the ability to spread mistruths has been so amazingly amplified. It's also going to be wild because a stable business model with few downsides and which allows good, high-quality news to be consistently produced and widely disseminated without introducing new conflicts of interest doesn't really exist right now. And based on current trends and forecasts, at least, probably won't exist for at least the next handful of years. I'd like to recommend today is called Cloud Cuckoo Land by Anthony Doerr. This is one of those novels that as soon as I started reading it, I discovered that like three different friends were reading it as well. It became a big bestseller and was very well promoted, so there's a non-zero chance you've already heard of it. But it did end up being quite a good read, and it's a complicated sort of story to describe, so I'm just going to read part of the description provided by the publisher. Quote, 13-year-old Anna, an orphan, lives inside the formidable walls of Constantinople in a house of women who make their living embroidering the robes of priests. Restless, insatiably curious, Anna learns to read, and in this ancient city, famous for its libraries, she finds a book, the story of Athon, who longs to be turned into a bird so that he can fly to a utopian paradise in the sky. This she reads to her ailing sister as the walls of the only place she has known are bombarded in the great siege of Constantinople. 
Outside the walls is Omir, a village boy, miles from his home, conscripted with his beloved oxen into the invading army. His path and Anna's will cross. 500 years later, in a library in Idaho, octogenarian Zeno, who learned Greek as a prisoner of war, rehearses five children in a play adaptation of Athon's story, preserved against all odds through the centuries. Tucked among the library shelves is a bomb, planted by a troubled, idealistic teenager, Seymour. This is another siege. And in a not-so-distant future, on the interstellar ship Argos, Constance is alone in a vault, copying onto scraps of sacking the story of Athon, told to her by her father, she has never set foot on our planet. End quote. Now, if any of that sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy of Cloud Cuckoo Land by Anthony Doerr. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find the show notes and transcript of this and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. You can find my other podcasts and my other projects at understandery.com. And feel free to reach out and say howdy on social media. I'm Colin Wright on Facebook and at Colin is my name on Twitter and Instagram and pretty much all the rest of them. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright and I'll talk to you again next week. Thank you.